Hey, 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 hey. What's up, everybody? This is Ari in the Air, coming at you with the How to Adventure podcast. So, it was probably seven years ago now, I was in this comp- the skiing competition called Winterfest. And we had this big jump down in the old mill here in Bend. And the day after the event, I saw some pictures pop up on Facebook of myself skiing that were really good. They were super, super cool. And it was this guy named Paul Clark. Well, I wrote him and said, hey, we should go shoot some photos. And it was just a couple days after that that he met me up at Mount Bachelor and posted up in the Slopestyle Arena. And I did some tricks. I did three tricks. And he was at the time shooting sequences and loving it. And so the photos are awesome. I did a I did a Superman front flip. And then I did a switch backflip. And then I tried my first ever switch double backflip. The switch double backflip didn't go so well. And I broke my ski and I broke my goggle. And I fucking got a little slice on my face. But... Paul was stoked, the photos turned out rad, and it started a whole relationship that Paul and I have had over the years of photos and adventures and stand-up paddleboarding and skiing and highlining and all this jazz. It's been so much fun. Paul's a great friend of mine, and now he is deep in his niche as a whitewater paddleboard pioneer we sat down we had a great talk talked about persistence and learning we talked about solo expeditions we talked about running whitewater and what stand-up paddleboarding is really good for and why it's so cool and why it's so fun and paul's a great dude i think he's got lots of experience bouncing around and finding his way and it seems that he's found it So, without further ado, here's a talk with my friend, Paul Clark. Okay, Paul. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> um, so I think that to get up to speed here, I think that I'd like to talk about the perseverance that brought you to whitewater paddleboarding <laughs> and the, I wouldn't say failures, but the the attempts at things that didn't stick in the past that as far as I know in your history it was telemark skiing and um, self-supported sea kayaking and with those kind of things my mind just goes to um, other 
just either archaic or totally crazy things like rollerblade dancing and <laughs> you know who knows what else brought you here so well i definitely spent some quality time rollerblading yeah. but <laughs> i'm just wondering like what what was it that kept you bouncing around and what was it about paddleboarding that stuck well, I was never interested in paddleboarding, and I was never interested in rivers. What I was always interested in, and I still am interested in, is long solo trips, being, my, being by myself in the backcountry. And so I've hiked the Pacific Crest Trail uh, through Hiked It. I've done many days backcountry skiing. I used to guide mountains. I used to guide on the sea kayaks. I've done you know, a two-month trip on the Sea of Cortez. I've done a month-long trip on the Sea of Cortez, paddling 1,000 miles. Uh, I've lived in a snow cave for 83 days. I've lived in a, a, a tent on the beach in Alaska for six months. I just like being outdoors. I like being in challenging environments. And uh, living in Oregon, if I wanted to do multi-day trips, it's the rivers. So I didn't know anything about rivers, and I thought paddleboarding was boring. But when I bought, when I brought both of them together, putting a backpack on a paddleboard and doing a multi-day river, I was hooked. Uh, my first multi-day river was 150 miles on the John Day River, and I had a GoPro on my dry bag in front, and I looked at all that footage of me just being awkward with a bicycle helmet and a wetsuit and a rain jacket <laughs> falling off on any time it was bumpy waters. And so I learned if I want to do rivers, I have to learn how to run whitewater. I don't come from a rafting background. I don't come from a whitewater kayaking background. Uh, the only thing I know about rivers is really standing up on paddle boards. And so for the last five years, I've made a lot of mistakes. I've fallen in a lot. I've injured myself a lot. Uh, but I've really found that it's my niche. I'm doing it. I'm thriving in it. I'm creating an industry for it. Um, I'm putting more and more people on the water doing the same thing and building a curriculum and that curriculum, that passion, that pursuit of multi-day trips on rivers has taken me to Patagonia, has taken me to New Zealand, has taken me to Japan. Uh, it's taken me to the places I've always wanted to be, both physically and mentally. Okay, and you mentioned that it is your niche, and what do you think is the implication of the niche being so small because hypothetically you could have been in the telemark skiing niche or you could have been in the sea kayaking niche what is it about the size and the novelty of whitewater paddleboarding right now that really boosted your stoke and your motivation uh in telemarking i i, I ski competitively uh i entered telemark uh world championships where it's just basically like big front flip to a big crater. <laughs> uh, I was photographing that. I was photographing mountains. I was, you know, every industry that I was in on snow or, or climbing, it was a saturated market. Like, I wasn't a strong enough athlete to be recognized in any of those, and I wasn't a strong enough photographer or a unique enough photographer to, to sell a lot of images in those. With paddleboarding on rivers, uh, for a few years, I was really the only one doing it, at least with a a dry bag on the board and I got a, a pretty quick reputation in the paddleboard industry as the duffel bag paddleboarder like hey here, here's this guy who's self-contained on a board uh, and when I started getting into the river world um, 
most people who identify themselves as river paddleboarders are river surfers. Uh, they'll find a standing wave and spend all day in it. And Colorado is the epicenter for that. Uh, there are dozens of whitewater parks and there are dozens of river paddleboarders, but they're usually in a standing wave or they're doing river races. Uh, so my niche hasn't been that. It's been in the Pacific Northwest and it's been the, the multi-day things and the reputation for being that duffel bag paddleboarder, uh, exploring new ways in a lightweight manner um, has is starting to build traction and um, one of a handful of people who have kind of pioneered that that fact you know I don't run I don't want to run really technical whitewater class fours class fives that's not what a paddleboard's for a paddleboard's for the the ability to express yourself in moving water class twos class threes there there are more of those in the world than anything else and uh, they're, they're a great environment for, for me to be in, and people are finding that. Usually people think that's, that's kooky, that's crazy, that's who would want to run whitewater on a paddleboard. Uh, and it doesn't have to be whitewater. You know, the John Day is a lot of class two that's just beautiful, and it's, and it's soul-inspiring. Mm-hmm. And you could go fast, or you could go slow, or you could stand, you could kneel, you could sit. Um, people are starting to see that. And that niche that I'm in is like a, I feel like I'm a, a, a pioneer traveling, like a, a minister spreading the word. Like, you could do this too. And, and some people are listening to it, which I'm, I'm happy for. Conquistador. Conquistador, sure. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I kind of feel that too with like paragliding in America, that there's just so much room to grow. And it's not all about being the best. It's really about telling your story because the story is worth telling. Yeah, there is no best. Yeah. I mean, what, what does best mean? Like, okay, you could stand longer. You could, I don't know, put your paddle in in a different way. There is really no best. It's just how passionate and how believable you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with that, what what do you think paddleboarding has taught you thus far because I've paddleboarded with you in the whitewater and you know when you started doing it I just kept telling you the the mantra you know I used to be a raft guide and the mantra that we always knew as raft guides was stand up paddleboarding in the whitewater we said stand up swim down yeah it's still the case (laughs) (laughs) it's still the case okay so what what has it taught you with having so much passion in a sport that is just known for failing over and over and over. Well, fortunately, swimming isn't failure. Mm-hmm. Swimming in a river is problematic. Swimming from a boat is very problematic. If you swim from your kayak, something terribly has gone wrong. If you swim from a raft, it's not the best place to be. Swimming with a paddleboard is kind of expected, but you do have this large flotation device that helps you get down through rivers. Uh, if you could do a boogie board through rapids or the river boarding, which is popular in New Zealand and in Europe, if you could tube down a, a, a river, why can't you paddleboard? And the, the boards that I'm on are river specific. They're designed for uh, river running with retractable fins and, and the durability and, and the width and the, and the shapes are, you know, specifically for running rivers. And 
ideally I'll be standing through a rapid. It's a it's a strong, powerful uh, stance to be in. But I teach river paddleboarding, and I focus on um, a stable stance, a low stance. My mantra is stay low and keep your paddle in the water. And staying low is in a crouching position. It's in a kneeling position. It's 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 being attached to your board without being attached. It's like skateboarding, but slower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you're going fast on a paddleboard at 10 to 15 miles an hour uh, with skiing. It's like, okay, can I get this thing to 80 miles an hour? <laughs> uh, so, so what I've definitely learned is the expectations of not swimming shouldn't be a part of it. Uh, failure isn't a matter of did you swim or did you not swim? Did you stand up or did you kneel down? Those aren't failures or successes. Uh, A clean run is something that you've been able to identify from the top of the rapid through the bottom of it, and you've stayed safe, you've stayed focused, and potentially stayed dry. Uh, I tell people, white water in a rapid are like the trees in a ski line. There are, there are pockets around them. The green water are the open areas. And there's a lot more green water in a whitewater run than people imagine. And being able to, to identify that, whether it be reading and running or scouting, see where the eddies are, see where the, 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 the pockets of calm are, and shoot for those. No matter how turbulent the water is, your successful objective is is finding the calm mm. um and when when people are able to see that and not just the the standing waves or the the hydraulics or the 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 falls but are able to define the calm water which could be all those things too i mean you don't have to avoid a hydraulic <laughs> uh you could ride through a hydraulic potentially um and something i'm working on right now is is hydraulics being in a hole Finding that calm spot, even in in that type of environment, uh, so breath training and, and things like that. But yeah, success isn't falling. Success isn't swimming or the lack of. It's it's finding calm. Yeah, I I like that. I like that a lot. It reminds me of one of the life lessons I learned on a high line, which is don't expect success, expect persistence, <laughs> and to just know that. It might not go perfect, but you know the whole time that you're going to do it over and over or be happy with how you do it in the first place. And both of us, you know, I've, I've, I've shared a lot of good experiences with you where you are persistent. You'll be on that line. You'll be on that ski slope. You'll be on that trick. I mean, the first time we met, you know, five, six years ago, you're like, hey, you want to take a photo of me? I'm working on this new trick. And it turned out to be a switch double backflip. Like, what's that? Like, oh, my God, come on, really? Uh, and then you've introduced me to a lot of the, you know, highlining isn't walking the line. It's being able to walk the line. And I saw your first, one of your first attempts at highlining, and all you were doing for minutes at a time was whipping, whipping, whipping at a Highline Fest. And people were waiting for you to get off the line because, like, how many times can you whip without just saying, I'm done? Like, I think you did, like, a (laughs) hundred times. Uh, That persistence is important. And with me, uh, you know, I tend to be pretty obsessive. And so for the last five years that I've been river paddleboarding, it's pretty much every day. 
you know, my first year doing it, I spent like 200 days in a dry suit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've seen it. I've seen it take over your life, and that's great. Tell me about how you've learned to deal with frustration, because I know, I know you, and I know that when you know you can do something and you try and you fail, it's frustrating for you. And I've seen that in you in the past. And I think that as you're getting older and you're getting better and you're learning to deal with these things, that you're, you must be dealing with that in a different way. So tell me about how you've dealt with frustration and paddleboarding. Instruct others. Mm. Be a role model for others. Uh, there's definitely times where I slap the, the board with, and you know throw out the F-bombs. Uh, even in, as recently as from my uh, New Zealand trip, I'll have the GoPro footage and me just like rah, 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 slapping the board because, you know, I, I uh, you know, fell when I wasn't expecting to or whatever. Not that I got hurt, just like, oh, I wanted a, a cleaner line. Um, but a lot of the, the students, a lot of people who take my clinics will treat rivers in a cerebral way and think like, which way do I lean into the current? And they'll fall and they'll be frustrated. And I'm clapping my hands. I'm cheering like, you did the right thing. You kept your head. Again, it's not falling that will dictate failure or success. It's not swimming that will dictate failure or success. It's how you keep your head. I basically have a few things that I, that I uh, focus on. Staying low and keeping your paddle in the water. And how well you can keep your head, even if swimming through a rapid. If you could just be calm and relax, that's important. And so I really tried to, to model that, especially in clinics, so that they could, you know, my students, the people who are paddling with me, uh, could keep their head. And when I'm slapping my board in frustration for whatever reason, that's not keeping your head. That's not finding the calm line. Yeah, you got to practice what you preach. Yeah, and, and being called out on it. You know, I call myself out on it. Like, hey, this isn't, this isn't the right way of doing it. Uh-huh. I love that. I love that. I think that's a great takeaway is to, even if you're not going to instruct, there's a huge value in learning to verbalize your technique, learn how it is that you do something so that when you fail at it or when you don't do it successfully, then you can go back and think about why as opposed to just be frustrated with yourself that you failed. And yeah, that's really interesting that you say that. That's the way you... That's one of the things that you've learned to deal with frustration is by teaching. Because I don't think naturally you are uh, like a pillar of, of <laughs> Zen, you know? <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't consider you one of my Zenist friends. No. And I think that that's totally, that totally makes sense that by teaching it, you have to, you have accountability to yourself to practice the things that you preach and that holds you to it. I love that. And I'll definitely find like Paul has has three personas: Paul solo, <laughs> Paul in front of people, and Paul in front of a lens, or in front or behind the lens. Like when I'm trying to compose something, I'm not Zen. Unfortunately, I'm I get frustrated with the technology. I get frustrated with the the composition. It's not the light that I want, or whatever. I'm not really peaceful when I'm either in front or behind the lens. When I'm solo. I could do anything that I want. Who cares? Um, you know, I'll find my peace or not. Paddleboarding, hiking, skiing, whatever, without a, a camera is a really liberating experience. But I'm most zen when I'm in an instructor role. When 
the lesson really focuses on keeping your head and staying calm. Uh, it seems like that's what my lessons are usually about. So how do you take that instructor Paul and get him to be more of the solo Paul and the in front of people Paul? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, no kidding, right? Uh, well, when I was in Patagonia, I was paddling with friends, and I was the instructor Paul. And one of those people called me out and like, hey, why don't you just be your real Paul? Why don't you, why don't you swear and be frustrated? It seemed like that was a more, my, my instructor role is maybe a little less in, authentic. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, that makes sense that like when you're trying to be, when you're in the instructor role, you're, of course, you're trying to be your best self and, and do that as an example for the people that are paying attention, right? That makes total sense. And I think that, yeah, it is a great question. It is the, the, the lifelong challenge of the best that you ever are, how do you make that be you all the time? That's a big challenge for all of us. Uh, yeah, I guess that is a challenge, uh, being the best. The best versions of ourselves. How do we get that to be our real selves. Well, I think it's just a matter of being satisfied, you know, being personally pleased with who you are. Uh, you know, I struggle a lot with, uh, explosive personality issues. Like I'm probably an undiagnosed bipolar personality. I, I, I dive deep into depressions and, um, pretty high a lot of the times and, and exaggerated with what I do. So my, my inherent, you know, personality, uh, goes through waves. And so the, the best Paul would be that calm Paul, that peaceful Paul that's right in the middle, but, uh, it's not, it's not the full expression of my personality. Yeah. So, and you know, sometimes when I'm at my height, I'm thinking that's the best Paul. And when I'm in my depressed states, I'm thinking I'm the worst Paul. Uh, and instructor Paul is just saying the whole time, get off the fucking roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, just be calm. Go through the roller coaster, but keep your head. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I think the best Paul, the best person that I could be, would be a person who's just happy with myself, mm. regardless. Where I'm at, it doesn't matter. What I'm doing, it doesn't matter. I should just be happy with myself. Yep. And I think adventure athletes in general. I haven't really found an adventure athlete who can say I'm the best all the time because a lot of their time is spent away from their dream world. They're not where they want to be, and so they're dealing with that experience of being a home or away from home or with their partners or away from their partners, whatever it is. They're, they're struggling with their circumstances. The people that I spend a lot of my time with right now are van life people. You know, I've, all, I've always wanted to travel in a van and live in a van. And I'm, now I'm kind of doing that. I'm, you know, I have a, a transit van that I, I sleep in a lot of the summers. Um, and the, the more people that I, I travel with who are van life people, they always talk about a home a fixed base with close friends. So they're, f- they're fulfilling their dream of being on the road, like that Jack Kerouac type of like life on the road is where the Dharma bum lives. Uh, but we struggle with it. 
You know, no matter where you are in your life, you're always going to struggle with your presence. Yeah, being home is hard for hard for us sometimes. It is. We want to be back on the road, on the expedition. Yeah, and in, in the air. Yeah, in the air, on a line, on the water, whatever it is. And when you're in your deepest backcountry experience, what do we think about a lot of the times? It's home, yeah. the comforts, some dry fucking socks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a hamburger, cold beer. Yeah, I know. I I think that. A lot of people see Ari in the air and they think, man, that guy might just, just like wake up and he goes and rigs a high line and he walks across it. And then the next day he paraglides, the next day he skis. And I don't think people quite realize that it's a lot of Ari in the chair <laughs> to make it all. to make it Ari all on like, the ground. Yeah, Ari on the ground, Ari in the chair, staring at his computer screen, trying to edit some video for his sponsors, making the whole thing go around. But we've 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 spent a lot of times uh, on the ground, and I've always admired how well you're able to adapt. You're always able to to do something on the ground that's entertaining, or you know, uh, you know, something that. I mean, you're you're a very genuine person in your own right. You don't have to be in the air to be airy in the air. Uh, if if there are people around you, like I haven't spent a lot of time just like you and me. There's always been other people around. And you've been, you're not afraid of the, the spotlight. You're not, a, and you do best when people are noticing you. You're not the class clown. You're not the, the whatever, but you're definitely a person who gets the party going and keeps it going. Ah, uh, thank you. So, you know, maybe you have those dark moments too when the, the spotlight's not on you and you're having to pay bills and things like that that are always, you know, maybe less than entertaining, but, you know, Airy in the air, to me, is a person who's on the ground and in the air. And if you're in the air, it's usually like inverted somehow. <laughs> <laughs> when you remember when uh, you uh, broke your collarbone? Yeah. Yeah, like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be skiing. You shouldn't be jumping, at least. And like you're like, well, I can't do straight airs, but I can still do backflips. <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> with the with the sling on. With the sling on. The one-handed nose grab backflips with the sling. Hell yeah. <laughs> take uh take your circumstances and and continue moving. That's your that's uh Thanks, what man. I've learned from you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Okay. I think that was a really good little 25 minutes right there. I think that was pretty insightful. Let's talk about paddleboarding specifically where it has come from and where it is and where it fits in the outdoor industry. Well, paddleboarding was a surfing sport. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an island sport. Longboards that you could stand up and paddle on. Uh, that's not my background. I'm not a surfer. I'm not an island person. I'm in, you know, I was raised in the high desert. Uh, but as paddleboarding has become popular, it's been the fastest growing water sport. Now people are sitting down and buying boats again. Uh, paddleboarding as a sport has declined. There are some regions in the world that you would expect paddleboards to be there. They don't even exist. Uh, Chile, you know, there's a lot of water in Chile, but nobody paddleboards. Um, and in New Zealand, where I just came from, paddleboarding is still considered what girls in bikinis do. It's not an adventure sport. It's, okay, I'm, I'm bored. It's, it's a nice day. There's some calm water. Let's go stand on a board. Um, maybe let's surf on a board. Um, and I, I, I probably associated the same things. Like, well, 
I don't really want to stand on a board and be bored. I want to, I want adventure travel. And inland paddling for me is adventure paddling. It's actually being on moving water in a whitewater park, down a river section, uh, uh, a long river section or a technical whitewater. All of these things, once you're on a standing on a board in moving water, it's really hard to go back to. You're not generating your momentum potentially. You're 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 going with the flow of a river. It's a really um, awesome experience. And those niche markets, the river paddleboarding, the sup yoga, the the backcountry paddleboarding, they're rejuvenating uh, the sport that's already in a decline. People are already finding that they bought a, a paddleboard or two or three, but they didn't go paddleboarding last year. They bought a kayak or they had other things and their their board that they loved for a couple of seasons has been sitting in their garage gathering dust. Well, I've already been to my favorite lakes a few times. I've already surfed a couple of times. I've already done things and I've passed paddleboarding. Um, I'm bringing people into the sport who actually are not paddleboarders. I'm not catering to whitewater people. I'm finding the people who are succeeding on the rivers with a paddleboard are either ocean surfers or mountain bikers or backcountry skiers. Like me, it's a way to be independent and self-propelled, and they're doing it on rivers standing on a board. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be whitewater people, potentially. They're not going to be doing cartwheels off Class 5 waterfalls, but they're going to be enjoying uh, a reasonable section of, of river on a board that they could hold in their hand and put on, on the, the ground. They could be in a position for a rescue. They could be in a position to paddle alone on a Class 2 river for, multi, for many days with just their tent and their backcountry stuff. Um, so the, the sport of standing on a surfboard has now become stand on a, on a, on a vehicle that you could be in moving water. Yeah, and I think that that kind of approach to it just offers endless adventure mm -hmm. on the world's rivers. And there are a lot of rivers in this world, uh, and the, the boards that I'm usually on are inflatable, mm -hmm. uh, durable, but roll them in a backpack, put them in a small car. The, the inflatable paddleboard, the ice up story, has always been about travel, always about storage. Well, I was just in a minivan in New Zealand with nine paddleboards. Portability. Yeah, just made it. the paraglide story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, put a, a board in a backpack and hike into an alpine lake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One of the first things that we did together on a paddleboard is hiked with your broken collarbone <laughs> up to the South Sister. And, you know, hiked 5,000 feet just to put a board on the water. Uh, just to say we did it, I guess, but also to show that it could be done. And there's a reason to find new places and let's put a board on the water. Um, the more I travel with boards, I'm actually being introduced to environmental causes. Uh, the, the cleanliness of water, the uh, you know, cultural heritages of water. There are some water areas that have been completely devastated by the way that we farm and, and the ways that we pollute industrially. Uh, there, there are rivers that are protected with wilderness laws or cultural heritage uh, laws that keep water more pure. Um, some cultures feel that it's all right to trash a river with your garbage. 
other rivers are completely protected because of, you know, an element of sacredness. You know, in Oregon, we have some of the best rivers in the world, and a lot of those those rivers are in wilderness areas and protected. Um, but you'll still find people dumping their their trash along the side of a river. Anytime, any place you could park, you could leave trash. That's not the case in Japan. Uh, it's even worse in in Chile. In New Zealand, the waters, the waterways are trash free. You don't find floating water bottles, but you do find uh, a, a tolerance for agricultural farming. There's a lot of there's a, a considerable growth in, in cow farming, and that means there's more erosion, that there's, there's more pollutants in the river. Uh, world-class trout fisheries in the last 10 years have completely been lost because of cow farming. Like, people want to go fly fishing in New Zealand, and some of those rivers they're talking about no longer have trout because of nitrogen levels. Wow. And, you know, this last trip to New Zealand really made me scratch my head and think, huh, by traveling on the river, you are visually aware of, of a changing environment. So what do you think the role, what do you think the responsibility of athletes in the outdoor industry to embody conservation and political causes are? It's the outdoor athletes who are in wilderness environments realizing how fragile an environment is. Uh, it's no surprise that a company like Patagonia is suing an administ- a presidential administration that could care less about the environment. Uh, it's, it's no wonder that the, the people who are traveling and, and touching the earth and touching the water have a, a sense of responsibility for it. It's not a boater who paddles a river who's throwing his trash in there. Mm-hmm. It's not a person who, who drinks that water who's contaminating it with who knows what. Um, you know, traveling in the Midwest this, this last summer, I was in Milwaukee where they have blue ribbon beer, you know, the, the Pabst Blue Ribbons, the, the Schlitz, the, all the stuff that Milwaukee's known for. But the water's toxic. They can't touch the water without getting sick, let alone drinking it. So they're a reverse osmosis system so they could drink the water. You know, uh, it's, I was really surprised. Like the, the, the Milwaukee River, I wanted to paddle on, and I was advised not to because I'd probably get sick some, mm. with something. And like, that's crazy. And so drinking hum kombucha and the beer based in Bend, you know, I real have a, a great sense of like, I live in a community where the water is treated well. The Deschutes River is an amazing place. Yeah, it is for sure. Well, I want to get back to some river stuff, especially with the paddleboarding. I think that to me, the thing that I see about whitewater on the paddleboard is the reinvigoration of class two. Yeah, sure. You know, the stand-up fall down, paddleboarding is kind of indicative that maybe you're doing it wrong and you shouldn't be in a class four. You should be uh, having fun on something more playful. Well, I'm 45 now. And the people who are really 
understanding and wanting to, to, to river paddleboard tend to be people my age who come from whitewater backgrounds, um, like retired raft guide or uh, the kayaker who's had some traumatic issues and, and don't really want to be in their boat running class five again. They're able to, to remind themselves that class two, class three can be a challenge on a board, a rewarding challenge on a board. And I'm putting people on the river who are not river people at all. So looking at those class two, class three river sections uh, are already a challenge. They're already an exciting element. They're already adrenaline building in its own right. Uh, so uh, a river paddleboard is just one other craft to be on the river. It's not like a whitewater kayak. A whitewater kayak is like a properly fitted alpine ski boot in an alpine binding. You could go backwards with it. You could go really fast with it. You could jump with it. Almost like a telemark ski binding is the river paddleboarding. Uh, it's aesthetically different. Uh, you're going to do different things with it. And it's the focusing on the different things that I'm trying to focus about paddleboarding. Like if I wanted to run a class five waterfall on a paddleboard, and some people want to do that. That's great. Uh, that's that's not what I feel paddleboards for. Yeah, it's its own craft, and it kind of forces you to read the river in a certain way and ride it in a certain way. Exactly. And if you accept that, that's where the the beauty lays. And I'm, you know, again, I don't come from a whitewater background, but I'm now interested in whitewater kayaking. Yeah. I think I would like to do that to do different sections of the river that I'm doing on a paddleboard. I think I'd like to be in a canoe. I think I'd like to be in a raft. I think I'd like to do a variety of things. Like doing a class five in a, in a, as a paddle raft, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I want to do that. I want to go to the Kern River. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the background that I came from was rafting. And yeah. I kind of got into some big water stuff. And I know you came out and shot us as we swam down the class five rapid here in Bend, Benham yeah. Falls. And then I've done some stuff on the. I think low section. water, that same line is possible on a paddleboard. At lower water, Maybe. I think a section of Venom yeah, is possible. Yeah. yeah, well, we ran it at 2250 that yeah. day, and it was yeah. a little juicy. Yeah. But I do remember, you know, that that time we did the overnighter on the Deschutes together, a self supported stand up paddleboard trip. Yeah. And it totally changed my mind on what whitewater paddleboarding was and why you would do it. And I re all I remember is that you were pretty pissed that we didn't bring enough beer. <laughs> yeah, we didn't. <laughs> you're like, there's plenty of room. We should bring beer. I don't think we brought any. And you're like, well, I think we should bring some. We should probably even bring a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, no, this is just a backpack trip. You wouldn't bring beer on a backpack trip. And you're like, well, we have room for it. Let's do this. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's true. That's true. I was like, oh, all my stuff has to go into a dry bag. Okay, I better slim it down. Oh, I guess I had room for another dry bag. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good times. Good times. Yeah. Well, I think that paddleboarding is really a, a unique way to go down the river. And it has potential to teach you about yourself and expectations. How has your approach to expectations bled out of paddleboarding? Mm, my expectations bleeding out of paddleboarding. Uh, huh, I don't know how to answer that. Uh, like, is it, is it working yet that 
you know, like we talked about earlier that how you would deal with frustration on the river, has that bled out of your paddleboarding yet and into your marriage per se? <laughs> well, I think I think any outdoor athletic successes, achievements can be a model for indoor and domestic life. Uh, the the underwater breath training that a person could do to be relaxed in a hole or to be, you know, in a in a big wave surf environment where you may spend a minute underwater. Uh, breath control and yoga, all of those things where you're in control of your, your mind and you're in control of your body, hopefully could translate into other environments that you're not in control of. On the highway, driving in traffic, in, a, in an argument with your spouse, uh, at the bank being denied uh, whatever. You know, you should be able to, to, to keep a calm head and, and perform well, uh, even when you're not in your outdoor stage where you might excel. So hopefully the lessons that I've learned from river paddleboarding and expedition paddling and long distance hiking and skiing have all been ways to inform me being a better person at home. Hopefully. Yeah. It hasn't always been the case. <laughs> and it probably never will. Well, we'll keep paddleboarding and we'll keep <laughs> living. And what I am concerned about and is that my outdoor pursuits, my passion right now is, is, is paddleboarding. Um, I'm afraid that that's a disguise of reality. Mm. It's basically my, my superhero costume. Mm-hmm. I could go save the world as a paddleboarder, but in reality it's just a, a way to disguise that I'm incapable of doing other things. <laughs> I think your wife will agree. Yeah, um, I mean, like, yeah, like Superman, for example. They never show Clark Kent at home paying the bills. No. Like, does he do it good? No. Like, how is he? <laughs> like, what what's he like in in a marital counseling session? What's Clark Kent like at a yoga studio? <laughs> is he just a goofball? <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, I want to switch gears. We've really bounced around. I'm just going with it. Sure. I want to talk about the technology here. I know that you work with Hala. Mm-hmm. What are they? What's the What's the best new thing, and what's the future? Uh, well, the future of 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 paddle boards will set people up for success. You know, cleaner lines. And those cleaner lines might be more technical whitewater. Those cleaner lines might be in bigger surf waves. Those cleaner lines might be uh, longer hikes or approaches in, so lighter equipment. What Hall is, the, the paddleboard that company that I work with and rep and, and do media for, Hall has retractable fin systems. Hall has boards that you could hit lava rock all day long without puncturing. Uh, stability-wise, the rocker. There's there's an element of technology that's always growing. Think about skis in the 1980s. You know, the the latest head ski was awesome, and then in two years later, the latest K2 was you know tits. That's you know, everybody needed a K2, and 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 river paddleboarding in particular as a niche brand is growing like that, and and it's focused in Colorado. 
there are at least four different paddleboard companies that are based in Colorado that say they're river paddleboarding. Hala and Badfish are definitely on the, the, the big dogs of that. Badfish is more glass boards and surfing. Mm-hmm. Hala is more about running whitewaters and expeditions. And there are some others that I would call copying that, those models. But yeah, you know, having working with a brand that uh, is devoted to the, a, a unique paddling experience is, is great. And, and following their, their growth is really uh, following the, the growth of the sport. That's rad. What do you think, if you were to speculate, what's the, what are the changes in the board technology that allow you to run a white water? Well, right now, let's, let's go back to this. The, the technology and the paddling perspective is surviving rapids. Uh-huh. I could start at the top and end at the bottom, and I'll have had a clean line. Great. That's great. It's surviving the rapid. Um, that's not appealing to a millennial. That's not appealing to a young person who snowboards switch, who hits backcountry booters. It's not interesting to a person who's at a skate park. It's not interesting to a person who's in a surf wave that's very dynamic and creative. Just surviving isn't appealing to a young generation. Yeah, it is to a person my age. Yeah, we want to thrive. But, but thriving. And so until river paddleboarding has a free ride movement where starting a rapid and ending switch or in a different position or kick flipping or whatever it might be, until that perspective is in existence and the technology to encourage that river paddleboarding won't grow as well and technology technology and perspective it's perspective it's it's uh a tony hawk saying well i want to do a 900 in the air that says i need a paddle i need a i need a skateboard to do that for me or wheels that will allow me to slide or trucks that will allow me to grind uh when the when the the skater the paddler whomever has a vision in their head and they want to translate it to their medium. Uh, that's what drives the technology. And right now, river paddleboarding is just you know people like me who wants to survive a river, a twenty-year-old who wants to kickflip down the river. That's when the sport will grow, mm. and the equipment has to be cheaper. Right now, the average river paddleboard is fourteen hundred bucks. Yeah, uh, the average skateboard is what a hundred bucks. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So. Do you think that the that the price is a big um, barrier to entry right now? Absolutely, and stunting. Absolutely. So what's the what's the recourse there? Do the things get cheaper? Do you start building fleets? What's the what's the play? Uh, because it's, I mean, like any outdoor industry, it's you know margins and volume. Yeah. Okay. So what are you doing at Hala to try to get more people? Um, to either break down the barrier to entry or to accept the barrier for what it is? It's, it's a matter of accept the, the barrier for what it is right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're definitely becoming more streamlined with, with manufacturing and distribution. And I have seen in the last few years prices dropping. Uh, and a lot of the reasons why prices are dropping is better technology at, at higher volumes. But also the, the market isn't it's saturated with cheap boards. Like you could buy a board at box stores like Target and Walmart for a couple hundred dollars. 
uh, unfortunately, those couple hundred dollar boards become landfill products pretty quickly. Yeah, you right. can't replace the fins. You can't you can't repair them as easily. Um, so what I'm finding in North America and also in New Zealand, those cheap boards have saturated the market. But they've saturated the market enough that they realize that you know the 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 more expensive, the better boards that are easier to fix and are designed for specific type of paddlings are going to be key. Uh, supposedly, you know, two years ago it was easy to sell a two thousand dollar paddleboard in New Zealand, and now they can't sell boards that are over fifteen hundred because you could get these boards directly from China for two hundred, three hundred, four hundred bucks. But those two hundred dollar boards aren't going to allow you to run switch down a rapid. Of course, yeah. Cheap things are expensive. They break after a couple seasons. Exactly. Yeah, and I have noticed, uh, not to blatantly plug, but Hala products are just, from my standpoint, completely indestructible. We've bashed them on all kinds of things and had them pinned in the river, and they're pretty tough. Yeah, and we have a three-year warranty. So, yeah, stuff happens. Uh, manufacturing glues, whatever it might be, uh, stuff happens. And so we're taking the lead in, in saying that we we trust our equipment well enough that it could be warrantied for three years. That's unheard of in the paddleboarding industry, glass boards or inflatables. Yeah, that's rad. Well, awesome, Paul. I think we had a great talk, man. I appreciate you coming on and um, wish you all the luck in, in the world for paddleboarding. Proud of you. Thank you, sir. I'm proud of you. Ha <laughs> <Cheers. laughs>